Hello, I'm John Kelly and this is a podcast of Mystery Train. For rights reasons, the music is shorter than in the original programme. Mystery Train hits the rails Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on RTE Lyric FM. I live music. Morning, noon, a whole night. Everything else is just icing on the cake, you dig? I dig. This is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM. John Kelly here until nine o'clock, the Sunday special, the night when we get someone in to pick all the music. And tonight I'm joined by Catherine Owens, who's an Irish artist. She's uh, based in New York, um, uh, works in various media and uh, is also, of course, well known as a close collaborator with U2 over the years as a creative director. You'll have seen her work if you've ever been to a U2 gig. Catherine, great to have you here tonight. Thanks so much. Thanks Lovely to be here. Thanks a million for coming in. <laughs> Catherine, just, to, just before we hear your first track, and I'm excited because I can see what it is, um, <laughs> where are you from? Dublin. Where are the bats? Uh, well, originally Blackrock. Yeah. And then uh, Newtown Park Avenue, to be precise. And then I went to college uh, after doing my foundation course at Dunleary, which was Dunleary School of Art, which is now DIT. Yeah. Um, uh, went to college in Belfast. For yeah, what was all that about? Why would you go to college in Belfast mm. when, when it, well, you know, there were plenty more, more options closer to home, I would have thought. Well, you know, it was kind of funny. There was two things. First of all, it was really at the height of the Troubles. It was just in the early 80s there. Another reason not to go. Well, yes, that's definitely true. And I do remember saying to my mum years later, like, what on earth were you thinking that you, you know, agreed to let me go to Belfast? And she was, oh, you know, well, your father and I were talking about it and we sort of thought, well, you'll, you know, you'll probably go anyway. So we'll just have to let you go. But um, at the time, there was a degree there. And for some, you know, bright spark moment in my brain, I did think if I was going to study for three years, I wanted to come out with something that I could possibly apply for a master's with. And uh, National School of Art did not have a degree at that time. That was basic. And then there was the music. Um, such a huge music fan. Uh what was happening in the north of Ireland with Stiff Little Fingers, the undertones, Rudy, you know, the outcasts. I mean, Pro- there was just... Protex. Yeah, yeah. A plethora yeah. of reasons to go north. Rudy were the best of them all, you know. Yeah. Well, I think Rudy was the best You ain't no friend them. of mine. Mm-hmm. Rudy was the best <laughs> of a lot of them. So you're at the Art College in Belfast then. Mm. And uh, who were the... Were any, any of the well-known teachers around at that, that point? Was you know, it's funny. Alistair that, McLennan? Well, now like it's that? interesting you should meet Alistair because to this day I say Alistair is one of the most important influences on my whole entire work and being and thinking. Um, he was the uh, professor at the, in the Masters. He was the head of the Masters department, uh, the MA department. But the most incredible thing about Alistair was he was an active artist as a teacher. Yeah. And he would do these lunchtime performances. Our college was at the end of Royal Avenue opposite the co-op, what is the co- was the co-op. Um, and it had a sort of a, a, a square a square in front of the door and Alistair would do these lunchtime performance pieces. And I think it was very inspiring to be in a, 
in college. He was also a Buddhist, practicing Buddhist. So, you know, he was really a bit of a god. And, you know, as us students would wander around thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, he's the real deal. I mean, one of his most famous performances, some people who lived in the North may remember this, he used to walk up and down Royal Avenue with a target on his back, an actual target. Yes, and he would do these... like what I would call, um, you know, site-specific time-based pieces, which would happen over, you know, maybe two days, one day. Yes, he was very uh, provocative and daring. And and I do remember once in New York when he came to visit and I was, you know, sort of post-art college with, you know, sparkles in my eyes thinking about living in New York. I do remember saying to him, you know, Alistair, you know, how like, how can I be like you? You know, one of those moments, you know. And he sort of looked at me and he said, you know, Kevin, it's not the orange's job to want to be the apple. I was like, oh, my God, he's a genius. <laughs> As if being a Buddhist wasn't provocative enough in Belfast in those days. Yes. Anyway, so did you get on all right in Belfast? Because, you know, I know the music was great, but it was grim. It was grim, but really there was a very strong underground music scene, nightclub scene, and a sort of a weird fashion scene between punk and, you know, and to this day, Northern Irish, uh, young Northerners are very cool and groovy and stylish. And um, I don't know, it seemed to be, uh, also we had uh, professors who were coming from the UK to teach us and it was under these sort of special circumstances of the Troubles. So I guess we sort of felt unique and, and you know, special on some level, Grand. you know. OK, your first musical choice is, is certainly not a punk song. It's not from the... In fact, it would be a band that the punks would not have liked at all. Not at all for their over-the-top melodrama. It's Queen. I'm not sure anybody's picked Queen before, which kind of surprises me. You'd imagine lots of people would have picked Queen. Why are you laughing? Well, because it was start there or else go back a step or two to David Casty and Donny Osmond and I just thought we I'll might start want Queen, to start with Queen, so. We'll start with Queen. This this is, uh, they're in their operatic phase at this point. Was this Night at the Opera? Was it the album? Yeah, uh, what was it? Or was, was it? it? Yeah. Um, gosh, was it Night No, the Sheer Heart Attack. Sheer, sheer Heart Attack, attack yeah. Was, yeah. You know, a lot of that was the album cover and the, for some reason it was just so gargantuan, you know. Yeah. Not punk. <laughs> so you can say what you like about Queen, but they knew how to put a song together. Catherine Absolutely. Owens is my guest tonight, and that's Catherine's first, uh, first choice, Queen. Eh? We jumped slightly ahead in that you went to our college in, in Belfast, but while you're still in Dublin, was the music in the house? Was Actually, yeah, you, uh, and really my mother my mother, Nora, she was a huge music fan, loved music, loved dancing, um, terribly romantic in her own imagination about about music. So we grew up listening to uh, Shirley Bassey, Charles Aznavour, you know, Frank Sinatra. And then she also listened to Louis Armstrong, Lena Horne, oh. Billie Holiday. So we really were brought up in this very diverse um musical um, what would you call it you know milieu milieu thank you so much you're welcome you know and so yeah she had a big interest that's good though because even you know kids don't know that's going in but it does 
You know, you, oh. you, they may not be aware of it or even think that they like it, but it, it, it's, it's, if it's there, people like Elvis Costello will say that, that they grew up here in Gershwin and Cole Porter all the time. And that, that's got to help later on when you start writing songs. Yes. Know? And when you, you know, when you wake up first thing in the morning, which we would do in our house, and you would either hear the radio going as you were coming downstairs or you would hear the music playing. You, you know, lean horn first thing in the morning or um, Tom Jones, uh, you know, then her Irish favourites were like the Clancy Brothers. You know, we really, she absolutely loved music. And what about yourself at school? Were you were you in the choir? Were you in little groups or anything like that? Um, no. <laughs> in a word, no. Well, school, school maybe would have one been one of those lost moments where my main focus was like, how can I get out? You're an artist now, though. When you look back at school, were you, as they always say, good at drawing? Were you good at, you know, the little assignments you would have been set by the teacher to, I don't know, draw a thatch cottage or whatever the case was? Well, be. it's funny, John, I was absolutely, totally useless at school. For any child out there listening right now who's bad at school, please take heart. There is a fantastic future if you just focus on something you love. But um, but I really did not have a good experience at school. I, you know, I, I, sh- I went to, I was educated by nuns. I probably would have done very well in a school that was uh, geared towards the arts, geared towards creativity. We didn't have those options at that time. But I do know that whenever I would come in the door, um, all of that was gone. My father was a very good artist. Um, He was in the advertising business, but his natural bent was drawing and painting. Mm -hmm. So my style would have been entirely inherited you know we used to look at how close our drawing styles were Um, and when you came in the door just whatever you were doing was wonderful absolutely did not matter you know the grades this that so there was a little bit of I guess fantasy world you know and in teeing up your next choice where were you in 1976-77 well I was at school but myself and one of my good school girlfriends a woman called Isselt O'Brien we were terrible we were very bold we would go to the gigs, we would take our little weekends in London and go and see shows and bands. And of course, all of that time in Dublin was the Boomtown Rats, Radiators from Space. Um, we would do the Moran's Hotel. You know, we really were very involved every chance. And we you're got. still at school at the time? 77, yeah, still right. at school. So yeah. were you bumped up against, I don't know, the likes of Gavin Friday at that point? Um, but no, a little bit later, I'm just thinking of Moran's Hotel because the prunes played in there. Yeah, yeah, we were definitely really going to all those gigs in that yeah. final year in school. Um, and then we I, we really would have, um, you know, Project Art Centre was so pivotal in what mm. was happening with the music scene then and Morns. And then, you know, my good girlfriend at that time for a troublemaking girlfriend, Adrian Tara. <laughs> Um, you, I, you, I don't know if you remember, but we um, put the band together, the old girl punk rock band, the Boy Scouts. Um, we answered an ad that Steve Ed Avril, Dara. yeah, Ed Dara. Mm-hmm. Um, we answered an ad that Steve Avril put in the paper for an old girl band, um, which became the Boy Scouts. Um, and and then we did a, a, a kind of a year as an all girl band. And then I got into art college and, and left Dublin, basically. So steeped in music. And steeped in art. So then, in those years, 76, 77, and the years after 77, mm. uh, what impact uh, What impact did the punk scene have on you? Because a lot of bands that came out of that particular time, whether they remained punk or not, will always say that just the attitude of punk actually changed everything for them. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's funny in a way. I mean, I, I'm thinking about the Coffee Inn on Anne Street, which is, you will probably remember where we would all hang out. And then there was McGonagall's. Oh, so that sort of route between the Coffee Inn and McGonagall's, we were right in between that moment of Thin Lizzy, Boomtown Rats, even just being maybe a couple of years older and, you know, Graham Parker and the Bee Stiff Tour and all those things that were coming into Ireland that I think Pat Murphy was bringing in at that time. Um, the bands were coming into play. And then this discovering punk, discovering that I can remember XTC coming to play. Of course, the Clash gig, Trinity, which... Were you there? Yeah, Ed and I were right up that front row and I think that's where we found our guitar player Carol Walters you know so there was an, there was it was really plus it didn't seem to be like there were any adults around and we seemed to just be having our own entire life somewhere you, between you, Grafton Street and Did you see The Clash in Dunleary by any chance did you? Top didn't half? see The Clash in Dunleary saw The Stranglers um, jam and a bunch of bands at the top You see half. it must have been great to see them I, I was just I'm, I was just too young, actually, you know, yeah. and of course I was I was marooned in Fermanagh at the time as well. <laughs> but um, I, I was too young to see these bands at the exact moment they flared up, which must have been hugely exciting. I do think that that, uh, but I think at the time, of course, we just thought it was totally normal that you were going to be going to see Susie and the Banshees and you'd hop over to London and you'd be going to see you know, 999 and the adverts. You just sort of felt that that was the way life was probably going to be for the rest of your days. Did you, you know? see the Pistols? Never saw the Pistols. No. I mean, they had both Malcolm McLaren and Vivian Westwood. Yeah. So in the same way that you two would have had Paul, you know, behind the scenes, even in those early days, there were great people thinking about how they could take a band to a certain place. Here's your first choice. Your second choice tonight, but... Here we go. When did you first run into you two, by the way? I, I, you know, I have a memory of... Um, I have one memory and Bono has another memory and I guess colliding together. Um, I We did some support gig at the Project Arts Centre as the Boy Scouts and somehow or another I was backstage and Adam was introduced to me as the bass player from I mean it might have been that they were the hype at that time or it was you 2 I can't exactly remember and it was just sort of oh, fellow bass players and that has that has ne that has never sort of dwindled to this day that um, that friendship of just being two people in a moment really um, and then and then Bono has this story that he was you know, slightly inebriated and lying on the bridge on, of the Liffey. Now, this might be a little more romantic than, than, than my story would be of the backstage, but that I came along and kind of picked him up and, you know, probably put him on the bus or something home and, you know, we made a friendship there. But yeah, right. <laughs> he tells that one much better than me, by the way. <laughs> but I think, uh, but how that how the the working relationship began, the collaborative relationship began, because actually, you know, the French in the, from the friendship side, um, I got into college in the north, and they would come and play in the north, and then they would sort of visit the art college when they would come and play, and they probably would have. Some of the band probably would have gone to college if they hadn't been in a band. So they've always been interested in the arts. Um, and then um, in New York, I was one of the earlier 
people of our group who left Ireland and went to New York and was sort of as an artist out of art college and they would come to New York and they'd say, OK, you know, you know where things are. So why don't you take us around? So at the time, nightclubbing was a very big deal. So we'd get into all the nightclubs and uh, and then over the years they started coming back when they would play. They were very interested in the arts and so they would they started collecting work and that would be another sort of cycle of things that we would all do together. But the creatively, what was the album? The one with the castle. Unforgettable <laughs> Fire. Thank you. It's a good job I'm here, isn't yes, it? Yes, it so is. It so is. So Unforgettable Fire, they were um, rehe- they were recording that in um, Dane's Moat. Yeah. And um, they had called me up. They wanted some soundproofing in the rec- in the room, and they wondered if I could make these very large sort of tapestry esque paintings, like wall hangings. <laughs> I suppose the egg boxes that most people would have exactly. Yeah. No, that'll tell you how far back their imagination goes. Wall hangings of paintings, and at the time, I was very interested in um, the work of a painter called Leon Golub, who did very large, beautiful, politically. Um, uh, political paintings and I sort of did a riff on on the inspired version of of his work and uh, and then on it went to Zoo TV they sort of thought okay you know you're still out there in New York and can you come and talk to us? Well let's talk about those things a little bit later on because mm. I'd like to get into exactly how that works and what, what you do and how, mm. how that's all, sure. all, all put together. Um, when you left our college um did you know what you were going to do or what you wanted to do or had you an inkling that you wanted to be? I mean, did you think there was a possibility of being a professional artist or work in the arts professionally? I had two impressions in my mind. One was from school because the educational system just didn't work for me and there was a lot of very exasperated teachers raising, you know, well, eyebrows. Hang on, when you say that now, what does that mean? I mean, we were talking Ds and Fs and Es. And have you, have you analysed... Why that might have been? In retrospect, I think probably if I did some, you know, dyslexic uh, yeah. um, research. Yeah, because that's often what yeah. turns out to be the case. Oh yeah, I'm it? the yeah. world's worst speller, and yeah. you know all that. So yes, but but also I'm not sure if having th- those problems solved might have probably not made me quite as driven as I was well, you, to did you find have my language. Disciplinary issues or no, concentration just, issues? Oh yeah, or? you know the not. When you're not really able to spell and multiply, etc., mm. you're really There's not, not really that on. interested. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you're in your daydream world. Mm. You're looking out the window, thinking of you know nature things. And there was no outlet for that, and nobody to take an, take an interest in someone who was uh, daydreaming. Maybe might be good at something else. Yeah, not really. And you know, the times just weren't in it. Right. They just weren't in it. But, but. But I do remember thinking to myself, OK, I'm really good at drawing and I'm very creative and I'm just going to become really good at that. Right. I just do remember thinking, this is it. This is your road out, your open door. And then all the encouragement I would have got at home. So that was one thing. And then the the other decision was, it was very clear to me at art college that I absolutely loved being, you know, painting, drawing, sculpture, filmmaking, printmaking, anything where you used your imagination. And I do remember somebody saying to me, oh, well, you know, you can't really be a full time artist, you know, kind of no such thing, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember saying to myself, well, hang on a second, you know, there's a bunch of very famous men out there who were full time artists. And uh, so 
Although I'd so, say, in fairness, know. you know, some of the people who said that to you might as, might may well have had your best interest at heart by saying that, you know, because it's okay saying I'm very good at filmmaking, sculpture, <laughs> painting, and drawing, and you're yeah. going, yeah, great, but. How are you going to make a living at it? It's a reasonable question to ask. Yes, you know? it is. But for me, it was all about the math. Mm. I could do the equation. I was able to see Belfast had a degree. Dublin didn't. New York was where the art world was. Dublin wasn't. I was able to really sort of do a, a math on that. And, and were you it. confident enough that you could jump from one place to the next, that you would make that journey? Because New York, I mean, I don't know what it was like for you, but for me, New York seemed a very, very, very long way away. Well, I do. I do. Well, two things on that. It's funny you're saying these things. I haven't really thought about them in such a long time. But two things. I was so excited about travel. I traveled for, when I was very young. So it, it was always exciting to me. But um, also when I moved to New York, I'd gone there sort of for a year testing things out. And then I really locked into it sort of early 86 time and I do remember in my bag there was a little letter from my mother and sort of getting to the other side and reading it and there was this note saying you know if it, you know if you ever feel like you um, need anything you, we're only a plane ride away and it's only five hours and I remember looking at that and thinking oh yeah okay that's cool like that's that bit taken care of if mm -hmm. it all goes to hell you know you can be collected and there was many, many times over those years where those that sort of feeling would you could you could go forward knowing that there was always somewhere else you could go to if it didn't work out. Now you, as you said earlier, you went out there before you two did, and you know when you think back about it, you two were the first band from here to go that route to go to go to America and crack America in that way. Mm. Most people went to London. Was that not an option for you? Just to go to bands went to London, artists went to London. That's why you went. Well. There was some very interesting things going on. I'm going to skim on the surface of this conversation. But at that time, Margaret Thatcher, the whole Thatcher era, there was a lot of problems happening in England. There was the minor strikes, there was the, um, the Falklands crisis. There was, there was a lot of things going on where, where England had to focus on themselves in a way. And I feel you two um, um, made very good decisions where you could for probably for the first time bypass England and go straight to America. Mm. There was a palpable moment. It was almost like all the heads that had made Irish people feel that they could, you know, if they didn't make it in London, I mean, with the rats would have been the land last at the end of the end of that, that if you didn't make it in England, you were never going to make it mm. in America. And there was just this tiny little open door and the zeitgeist and the time with Paul, etc, etc. I just feel there was a little gap and you two slid in and that was it. The, and so did other people at that time on the creative side. And London suddenly was didn't have the same gloss. Your next song is from a time when it had that gloss. London Calling, The Clash, The Choice of Catherine Owens is with me in studio tonight. Catherine is uh, an Irish artist. She's uh, based in New York City. She's got an exhibition in Dublin, which we're going to talk about shortly. Uh, she's also a very close collaborator over the years with you too. So we'll be talking about all these things and more. She picks her music tonight. Um, your next choice is a, a band called The Gist. Tell me about The Gist. G-I-S-T. G-I-S-T. It's funny, John. It's a song that stayed with me. 
it's a terribly simple song. Um, and I think um, I think it sort of speaks to a dual kind of a road or, you know, many roads, but this parallel track that a lot of people who were interested in music during that time in the um, 80s and the 90s, where you you had this kind of late 70s also, this sort of heavy, forward-moving punk um, sound. And then parallel to that was this very sort of soft independent uh, sound I was mentioning to you like orange juice fell into that for me and mm. the gist and um, everything but the girl and a, a very sort of mellow romantic sound that certainly appealed to me. And kind of lighter. Lighter. At least sonically anyway. Sonically not so complex but, but just this kind of um, searching. Okay let's hear the gist. And that's the gist, love at first sight, the choice of Catherine Owens, who's with me in studio tonight, picking the tracks. Catherine, you mentioned earlier that you played bass in uh, the Boy Scouts. <laughs> sounds, <laughs> sounds really odd. Um, I'm going to ask this question as delicately as possible, and believe me, I've asked it to better-known bass players than you, right, in public. Did you play bass in the band because... You weren't a great guitar player, if you know what I mean, or you couldn't play lead guitar mm-hmm. or any of those things. Because sometimes, you know, people mm. form a band and the guy who doesn't know more than two chords ends up being the bass player. And the person who knows three chords ends up being the rhythm player. And the guy yeah. who knows four has to go off and learn the solo to Freebird, you know? Well, that's very good. Well, very good question. In truth, I probably, especially coming off that last song, I probably should have been the tambourine player (laughs) or the the homemade little rice, you know, whatever, the two plastic cups with the rice in it. That's probably what I should have been playing. Um, But I think how that worked was I definitely wasn't going to be the singer. We had a fabulous drummer, a woman called Eta Carr. Adrian was going to... Ed was doing... um, um, keyboards and then Carol Walters was a guitar player. So it was sort of like, you you know, there wasn't too many other things. Plus, I was offered a fantastic bass guitar, a Dan Electron, you know, with the little kind of curly bits, curly little handly bits, a a sunburst Dan Electron um, with an amp from one of the gamblers who was selling it, I think, for £12. Very good. So I think it was, there was a lot of things rolled into that. And did you set about um, studying how to play the bass well, and by that I mean it was possible to be a very, very average bass player in a rock band. You could just sit there and bang away there on the bottom chord and or bottom note and just mm. do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you heard other bass players out there, like the guy who was playing with Injury and the Blockheads or Tina Weymouth or all these bass players that were mm-hmm. out there and you go, oh, what are, or even or Paul McCartney. What are they doing? For really a lot of the drive of of putting the band together and being an all-girl band is that we were girls who were really interested in music and we felt that we definitely needed to legitimise that in some way so that we weren't looked at like we were, you know, groupies or or fangirls or... So there was sort of an establishing our position that was going on in that decision uh, which I think actually really did work because (laughs) retrospectively... There are people who seem to think we were a lot better than they really were, than we really were. 
<laughs> and an all-girl band as well. That was that was important. Yeah, and of course we were very influenced. I mean, I think we were quite influenced by the Slits and, um, um, you know, by various female. Of course, Tina Weymouth. You know, but I think we were just looking at to see how the girls could be in there with the, uh, and be taken seriously. Let's hear Tina Weymouth. Here's Talking Heads. Talking Heads, Heaven, the choice of the artist Catherine Owens is with me in studio tonight picking all the tracks. Um, maybe we'll move to New York now, I just haven't heard Talking Heads, Catherine. When you arrived in New York first, and as you said earlier, you know, you were out there before you two arrived and all that kind of thing. So when you arrived out there, how prepared were you for New York? What what did you have in your arsenal as such? You know, were you, were you, were you arriving with a reputation of any sort? Were you arriving with a CV? Were you arriving with some work? Or were you, were you arriving totally blissfully ignorant of what lay in front of you? Gosh, well, there, there's the question. I, I think there's a, two things there. One is Belfast certainly prepared me for New York. If you are talking about living in an intense environment, the time why I was at college in Belfast, you know, it was daily searches. Um, there was no go areas. Uh, there was very few if any, Southern students, other students in the college. So um, you really had to kind of muck in with everybody you were in with. At that time, the college would have been one of the few colleges where both Protestants and Catholics were going together to uh, college together because it was the art school. Um, so there was that sort of fantastic camaraderie between um, Protestant and Catholic students that yeah, there just was no barriers the create the creative um conversation would have would have um, eliminated a lot of barriers so taking that getting on in a, in an intense environment certainly translated very well into new york because at the time the lower east side was a bit of a bombed out place to live which is where we lived you know whereabouts were you uh, at first the very well for the first down on the Lower East Side, I think um, 12th and 2nd was one of the places I lived. Mm. And um, I had friends on 6th and A and 6th and B. And, you know, and it was this all... was in what, 19 what? Well, 1986 yeah, was well, really was. when I was there. Yeah. I had started going there from kind of 84 to 86 and then I really got in there. Um, but I started off as an intern and I guess this is this is interesting. When I was at college and I was very um, um, inspired by the, the artist Leon Gollop, I had written to him from college, you know, as you did in those days. You put the stamp on the envelope and posted it. And um, I'd written him a fan letter and he wrote back to me and said, please come and see myself and his wife at the time, Nancy Spiro, an extraordinary artist. Um, come and see us in our studio. You know, so I arrived if you're talking about you know, what was I thinking? I arrived just, you know, my degree show slides at the time. And um, I also had written to an experimental performance art space. I was very interested in performance art and film uh, called The Kitchen, which is still there. Mm. It's uh, in a different location now. At that time, it was in Soho. And I'd written to them to, um, uh, to look for an intern job. 
and uh, the, I had got a letter back saying thank you so much but you know we're uh, we're fine right now we have everybody we need and but if you call in every now and again you know we'll see what's there so uh, I every Friday I would call by to see if they had anything and the woman in the PR department told me later that at just at some point they got sorry they felt sorry for me and they just said you know let's just put her on the reception desk and she can answer the phones and so I had an internship there for a year and at the same time I got a job working in the in Tower Records on 4th and Broadway yeah yeah in the dis- in the foam core display department that was my favorite place in the whole of the city a dangerous place to go to because it opened late at night yeah. So you could wander in there very late at night with a bottle of wine in you and think it'd be a great idea to buy a box set of Bob Will's rec- early records. You know, I, this is, I really want to hear this now. And you'd also spend you a could, fortune in You there. could stay there and listen to it for as long like, as you like. And Keith Richards lived upstairs. Keith Richards lived upstairs, yes. Plus it was just a, a destination. So there was... There Sorry, was, I interrupted you. Well, there, no, no, sorry. no, but it's, it was... So what was happening in the kitchen at that uh-huh. time... OK, so what was happening in the kitchen at that time, like as I was the on the reception, I would be watching Laurie Anderson, um, uh, all the various, you know, Philip Glass, the various... Incre- John Adams... These people would be coming through the space early days of performative work. And uh, then on the other hand, you'd be going to the gigs at night at the Ritz or, you know, any of the various venues. So it was very inspiring. Because, you know, one of the things, and I, I end up saying this a lot now in these Sunday night programmes, but it's common to so many guests, is that at some point on their journey to becoming who they are, they did something kind of, rash and said what was I thinking and you've just done it as well you wrote to your favourite artist <laughs> and you end up you know come and see us kind of thing and people other people we've spoken to did exactly the same thing they wrote to Marina Abramovich they wrote to some free jazz teacher and travelled from Ireland to be taught by this person you know people actually took the took the bull by the horns themselves and went and did these things that you might think would be would take a lot of gumption actually or self-belief but maybe it was just naivety I think there's a bit of naivety. There is one thing I will, one part of that story. So between college and going to New York, I had, I I rented a little studio space on Strand Street. And at that time in that space were all the incredible Irish artists, contemporary Irish artists. There was Gwen O'Dowd and Cecily Brennan and Ethna Jordan. And I mean, it was just really extraordinary. I was, I felt like I was like this baby looking in this window of amazing Irish artists because they had studied in the South and I had studied in the North and I was literally passing through. But I do remember there was an American artist who had come to visit somebody in the studio. And I, with my naivete, which goes to what you're saying, was telling him how, oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to be an intern at the kitchen and, you know, Leon Gollop has written to... So there was all this big, you know, dream going on in my mind. And he was a little less excited about all of this. And he sort of said, well, you know, I just want to point something out to you, you know, that when you get to New York to, you know, get this internship at the kitchen, you know, you're going to walk down the road and there's going to be a line of other people who want that job. And when you're walking through the East Village at night and you see people's lights on and, you know, on the fourth floor and you think to yourself, wow, you know, they're partying or they're having an incredible time. He said, no, they're going to be working all night long because they have a job that they hate during the day. And I'm 
not kidding you, when I got to New York and I walked down to the kitchen, I was like, please, God, don't let there be a line of students around the corner. You know, so, yeah, there is a definitely naivete, but you have to go with that. Next musical choice is, well, you pick one now because I've jumped ahead. So, here we go with Elbow, uh, New York Morning. New York song. And that's Elbow there and uh, New York Morning, the choice of the artist Catherine Owens, who's with me in studio. Again, uh, I mean, Elbow, very, a very English band, even though Guy Garvey's people are from Kerry. Yeah. <laughs> and, and a very, but a very English band. Uh, but that's a New York song again. And mm-hmm. I, don't know if, I don't know if Guy or those guys, you know, hung around CBGBs. I don't think so. But you did. I did. I mean, it was part of the, you know, the sort of the circuit. Yeah. You know, but that song, as I was saying to you, it's very, it really struck a chord with me, especially the video, if anybody gets a chance to watch it on YouTube, um, because the design for the video, it's a real typical New York uh, driving around the town. I mean, many videos have been made, but the concept for this, and I'm not sure whether it came from the band or came from a design team, etc., but um was that they there was a couple who drove cabs in New York, a CBGB's fan, music fans, and uh, they met at CBGB's and they uh, drove all the stars around and they had all these stories about these different people they drove around and about CBGB's and the clothes they wore to the gigs and they, they shoot part of the video in their apartment or their house. But what's lovely is that they integrate the song with this narrative from the couple about CBGB's with the um, um, sub, subtext or, you know, the the title. Sub, subtitles. Sorry. Subtitles, thank you. Um, and so you get this audio visual experience, which is the is the thing that talks to me, is the thing that talks to me both as an artist and as a collaborator. It is the audio visual experience um, of your vision of living or your version of life or whatever that is. Uh, so it's a particularly wonderful, full song, I feel. Now, when you talk about what does it for you as the audiovisual experience, when you arrived in New York as a young hopeful, you, you hadn't figured out what, what you were about, had you, at that point? You no. You couldn't have. No, 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 no. So no. What, what, was your, what was your kind of creative journey at that point? Then? What did you do? Did you, when, when was your first exhibition? When was your first show? Well, you know, as most artists who arrived then, you, you, you had a sort of a gang, your peers who you arrived with at the same time from other parts of America, other countries. And showing in group shows was, was the thing. And I certainly did that with the, the crew who had arrived. And every generation, there's a crew who arrives and goes through the same process. It still hasn't changed. Um, but I think I, my degree was in paint, fine art painting. And luckily enough, in Belfast, it was an extraordinary college. We, did, we had done performance. We learned about film. Um, so finding myself at the kitchen in this performance art space, the influences again of these people who were performers who were working with visual content, I can see now that that was where it was all going. It didn't have a word yeah. or a title, but it was definitely where it was going. And would you have found that in any place other than New York, do you think? Because, I mean, New York's special that way, isn't it? There's just so much going on. 
Well, at the time when I left college, I did want to go to London and I was madly in love with this man who lived in London at the time, who knew me quite well. And uh, he said to me very wisely, he said, you know, Catherine, knowing what I know about you, I don't think you're going to love London. I think you're going to love New York. He'd worked around the world. And he said, and I think that you can come back to London if you don't love New York, but it's going to be much harder for you mm. to go to New York if you don't love London. Mm. And I think it was sage advice. And um, certainly at the time, it was the right thing to do. What was your first, what, what you might describe as a big leap ahead in, in New York, a kind of a break as such? I... It's it's very hard because I'm not sure I quantify things lie in that way, and I'm sort of feeling you're on a track, and the track goes up and the track goes down. Mm. And well, let me put it another way: in terms of you felt you were getting noticed, or you're getting some kind of, I don't mean attention, but that you were, you were maybe emerging even briefly from the pack. I was with a very competitive pack, <laughs> and honestly, that pack of all gone forward quite not even even the group I came out of Belfast with um, Dave Fitzgerald who runs the Curlin Elizabeth McGill Rita Duffy you know it was a very strong year so I think we were all fairly ambitious um, but coming out of New York really I think my journey was heading in this direction with exhibiting and solo shows I had a show here in the Curlin when the Curlin first started I had a solo show at the Hugh Lane um, and at that time I was also collaborating and definitely the collaborative work just went straight out in front for a while um, while I could still work in the studio and still make my own work. The collaborative process fascinated me because I felt I was going to learn. I was going to learn a lot, which I did, especially about technology. Mm. We talk about technology after your next choice. It's Nina Simone and it's what four women. Yes, this, this, is, this is a big song. This is big stuff. And that's uh, four women from uh, Nina Simone. The choice of Catherine Owens is with me in studio. Catherine's a, an artist based in New York. Uh, has worked a lot with you too. And just before we talk about specifically working with you too, where did you get this uh, this introduction to technology? Because you you have to work with technology at a at a very high level. So where did you where did you learn your chops in that regard? Well, I I think. Probably, again, coming from that uh, performance uh, experience or that interest in um, the merging of materials um, that when we started uh, working with technology, or when I started work, I guess through filmmaking, I really think that's, that's it. Filmmaking and audio would have put you firmly in the world of, you know, you have to have gadgets that have to mm. work. And you, you actually learn a lot sitting beside the editor and sitting beside, you know, the, you just learn from the people who are working beside you too, don't you? I mean, you pick up a lot from them. I think you do. And I'd say, I'd say uh, my strengths would be that my instincts are pretty good 
and my understanding of design is pretty good. So even audio wise, I can I am not bad at working out when something should be placed up against something else, mm -hmm. whether it's in a painting, in a drawing, in a piece of audio, in a film. Um, and then I and then working with technology for me has always been the opportunity to work with technically minded people versus creative people. And would you consider yourself technically minded? No, I'm not, but I've got a very good aptitude for interpreting the technical side of things mm. and also for understanding the technician. So I'd be pretty good at my instincts would be pretty good on that. So, for example, if I'm working with an editor and I've got a very good a, a relationship with that editor or the designer or the collaborator, then we can go somewhere with the information. But it doesn't matter whether I know anything or don't know anything. Mm. But if I'm not working with somebody where there's a connection, then the then the technology just adds to a, bur a burden. Yeah. Really. So, well, these are people skills you're talking about, really. Aren't yeah. They? And if you're in sync with somebody, oh, my gosh, it's incredible, because then especially with me, I like to um, work with people who've got things they like to do. So I'd be more encouraging of like, oh, OK, what's in that little secret box that you've got there that we can, you know, what weird stuff can we do to something? Now, you can, you know, work with technology for say an installation work in a, in, a, in a gallery a small gallery whatever it is or whatever site but there's a, there's a particular audience going to come to that when you're engaged by you too to work on something huge how do you how do you approach that because it's it's on a different well it seems to me on a completely different scale or is it exactly the same thing I don't know um there's similarities. There's there's over time you evolve a language where you be, you come to really understand um, the collaborative narrative, let's say, of how you're going to work together with the team. But I'm particularly audience driven, so I'd also be quite aware of the audience and what they might be looking for, what they need and um, how you would keep them engaged. That's the well, same across the board, to well, be Well, let's take a, a concrete example. What was the first time you two approached you then as a, as a creative, a creative, what would you call it? Creative consultant, creative director? The, uh, fir the first time was sort of creating content for Zoo TV. At that point, they had these trabants that they needed to have customised. You know, I was a painter. Catherine, paint the trabants. Paint the trabants. Okay, yes. Right. I can understand There's that. The check. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> you I know. can understand that. Yeah. We know Catherine. She's got paint. She'll yeah, she to, has yeah. paint. She knows yeah. how to use a brush. We'll get her to. Yeah, that is exactly true. But during that time, because I was living in New York, I also was very aware of what was happening in um, in particular through MTV. MTV had been a huge fan of what was going on visually, content-wise. MTV, MTV had begun to run these things called um, buzz clips. They were little idents that went in, in between songs and they would commission artists to do these idents. And I had favourite idents and artists who would make them. And um, then when the band were saying, like, what could we do, you know, what what ideas might we have for what was the jumbotrons at the time, the very large video feed, I would I had suggested a couple of people that I thought they could work with. So they said, OK, Catherine, you go off and mm. organise all that. So that really began the journey. And then that just went on and on from tour to tour. 
to the next tour then when I was also making my own work for it as well as uh, curating content and commissioning work and you know at that point then when you're moving on to that level now you're dealing with contracts lawyers fees you know so you're beginning to the technology um, on on Popmart everything was on laserdisc okay what are the what are the specs for content for a laserdisc so just by osmosis you began to take all of that in so the content that we're talking about am i right in saying it's mostly what we're going to see on the screens yeah, that's that's really what visual con- screen content, screen content called. and painted trabants. Screen content, it became screen content because mm. after Zoo TV, it was screens. Yeah, you know, LED screens, and then other projects, other projects that we would do together. Now, Zoo TV uh, was a, a spectacular, and mm. people people probably forget because as time goes on, each you two they, they keep outdoing themselves as they go on and on and on. But each, each one when it happened was extraordinary. It was just mm. amazing, you know. And, and uh, people remember Pop Mart and people remember Zoo TV. Um, what were the particular issues or challenges around Zoo TV? St- say what? What uh, there was? I, I do remember an awful lot of a, a lot of graphics, a lot of messages, a lot of uh, words being flashed up on the screen. I think yeah, I think Zoo TV had a lot of components. The challenges were all incredibly exciting because we were just beginning to collaborate with some very important other artists. So we had one particular collaboration on Zoo TV with an artist called David Wanarovich, who's having a major retrospective in the Whitney at the opening at the in the Whitney in New York this month. David would have been a very important artist inspirationally for all of us because at the time he was HIV positive. Um, and he was it was very early days in the disease and he was beginning to make work about that. So we decided we were going to support that and we worked with him. He really stepped out of the art world to work, to collaborate with the band. Um, and he used that for his own um, gains for what he wanted from it. And it was just in quite an incredible collaborative time. In now, when, that way. You, when you say we, and I and, and you know I'm not looking for tales out of school here, but when you say we, are you sitting at a table with the band, some of the band, all of the band, plus I don't know Paul McGuinness, plus the stage designer, but who 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 is the we who sits around and makes these decisions? Well, in the in the days, yeah, <laughs> back in the day, in the pre-huge contract days, um, that team was the band wardrobe, lighting design, audio design, uh, management and production. And that, depending on the meeting and who needed to be in any particular meeting, Mm -hmm. like the wardrobe department didn't have to be in every meeting, but there were some meetings where you were presenting something visually. And yes, the wardrobe department wanted to be there because they maybe wanted to design a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of things around a concept. But everything starts with the music. You, the music comes, you get at various stages, different people get the music, whether it's the beginning, halfway through, fully, fully finished. And then you've sort of got to dissect where you think the band might be going, either visually, politically, socially. And then you go off and bring back the goods that you think are going to be important. And then there's a group consensus. You know, Gavin would be involved in that. Yes, no you know that and then you're inspiring other departments they're inspiring you uh, very small groups for a long time a lot of uh, 
talented thinkers allowed to do what they needed to do you know, significant budgets so people could really go out there and, and bring home um, groundbreaking things, a lot of groundbreaking things going on. And does that start to shrink and shrink and shrink till it becomes really the band who are making the call at the end, the end of the day when it all gets down to? Well, not really. Well, at the end of the day, they're trusting that you're going to bring new, fresh good. Mm-hmm. And then you're all bringing things together into a rehearsal environment for maybe five weeks. And then and then they're testing out all the different departments at the same time uh, in rehearsals. And then you're jettisoning, jettisoning things and then you're re-editing things or you may be newly commissioning things. Now, I'd imagine if you were working for, say, the Rolling Stones in that regard, Mick would be all over it. Charlie couldn't care less what you do. Do you know that kind of thing? There'd be different dynamics from different members of the band. And I'm just guessing in terms of the Stones. But I'd say you two, they're all, they'd all be on it in terms of what, what they're going to look like at the end of the day. Yeah, they're all on it. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I can say. They're all on it. And depending on who, you know, my, like obviously I have a strong relationship with Adam and then I have a very strong creative relationship with Bono. Um, so a lot of my conversations would need to go directly to Edge or Larry mm-hmm. but at the same time Edge and Larry would come in at a certain point and then they would be you know they'd have their other departments that they were working with and then they'd come in and then group group decisions would be made mm-hmm. and then Larry would say yes or no Larry <laughs> I always say it's between Bono and Larry for me because but Larry has, has <coughs> saved many a moment where he'd be like uh, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right too. Let's have a U2 song. What are we having here? I think we've got If You Wear That Velvet Dress. This goes back to the parallel soft thing, which is maybe a bit of a thing for me. Parallel soft. You know, as in the, as in the, as in the gist, you know, you've yeah. got the clash here and then, you, you know. Yeah. So you've got Sunday, Sunday here, Sunday, bloody Sunday here, and then you've got If You Wear That Velvet Dress. You know, there's a sort of a, interesting place that they're certainly not afraid to go to, you know. Okay, here it is. If you wear that velvet dress, that's you too. The choice of Catherine Owens, who's my guest tonight. Catherine has worked with you two a lot over the years on the on the tours as a creative director and we'll be talking more about what Catherine does after this break. We need to take a break. We'll be uh, we'll be right back after this. This is Mystery Train on RTE Lyric FM, the Sunday night special where we get someone to pick the tunes. And tonight, the artist Catherine Owens is with me in the studio. Catherine's an Irish artist. She lives in New York. She's an exhibition in Dublin we're going to talk about. And uh, we've just been talking just now about her work with you too over the years. When you hear music, do you see things? Is that the way you work? I do. It does go hand in hand. I don't see things, but I, I don't see things with every piece of music, but certainly if somebody is saying to me, can you interpret that visually and they're giving me a piece of sound, any piece of sound, then yes, I can go to that place and make an interpretation, abstract, figurative. Now, be- just before we leave you two, Catherine, I want to ask you about the 3D film, which you two 3D, which you produced and directed. 
Well, I was one. Well, one of the producers. Of the, I'm sure yeah. there were 50 million producers on that. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure there were quite a few. And then Larry, <laughs> no. So, you, you, but, but, you, but, but you have, uh, you know, you directed that. And 3D wasn't new, but this was on a whole new level, wasn't it? Well, it was, what it was, was it was the first 3D film to be made digitally. So from that point of view, it was new. And there was a conversation going on in Hollywood at the time about um, developing the 3D films and the technology and the cinemas for viewing, 3D viewing. Mm. So we were at the very beginning of that. Now, what we didn't know, because we're in our little bubble, that was on the Vertigo tour, which we decided to film for 3D um, under great pressure from people, the people who were kindly paying for it, the producers, um, was that we didn't really understand that there was a whole conversation going on and that if our film was successful, a lot of other films were going to be greenlit. And if our film was crap, a lot of projects weren't going to be greenlit. So you were kind of the canary in the mine kind of... We were, without being aware at all. And again, coming back to the technology for me, so exciting working with brand new technology, with people who were literally making programmes depending on what we wanted to see in our edit. Now, I saw that film in Dublin and the band were there and we were all wearing glasses that night. All of us were wearing dark glasses. 2008. We all had to wear these glasses and there was the band, yourself and the whole thing. And it it was great excitement. And and I'm wondering, well, how are they going to how are they going to do this? Because it's you know it's three D and and what I liked about it is you didn't overdo it, and there were moments in it which were kind of astonishing. I'd seen some three D before, but not with that not to the same not with the same effect. Simple things like the the front of Adam Clayton's guitar, where the, or the, where the frets are, or not where the frets are, where the tuning keys are, just just comes across the front of the audience. You have to duck, or Bono kind of you know punches forward and, and you can move back you know so it's kind of happening over your head almost you didn't do that throughout the whole film which was, was which was a sensible choice I think taste wise because we would have we would have taken these things for granted I guess after a short while and thought well this is easy there'll be more of this in a minute but it was it was you'd obviously thought about it a lot you've got this technology but you didn't overuse it yeah, I definitely think we're definitely air on the side of allowing people come to something. And again, I guess that's probably similar with how, how I would approach making my own work, where you want people to engage, but you really don't want to overwhelm or overpower. 3D is already overpowering just by its nature. Mm. Um, and in that, we wanted to give a very pure performative experience. There was no, it was a documentary on the show, but there was no backstage, there was no story telling there was no you know oodles of oodles of cables and trucks it was just the performance so we wanted to see if we could if we could make a film using the performance and the spatial um, options that were open to us which was creating depth and um, a richness of um, editing and audio. The, we did a um, 5.1 surround sound audio. So those things were all um, the, the challenges. What was the date? You just mentioned the date. How long ago was that? 19? 2008. 2000, I was going to say 19. 2008. Don't say because this is the 10th year. <laughs> well, well the, re- the, the reason I ask that is because, you know, you mentioned earlier that if it, if it was a success, various things would be greenlit. So it was a success. 
So what, yes. ha- what happened then? It was suddenly, right, this, this 3D thing, it works. Well, there was one nice story where um, we had shown excerpts from it at Cannes um, before we launched at Sundance and uh, Vim Vendors had been to see it and there's a lovely story that he walked out and he called Pina Bausch, the amazing choreographer. Uh, they'd been trying to make a film together for maybe 10 years or so on conceptually and he called her up and said, I now know how we're going to make our film. And then he went on to make Pina, which was so beautiful. So um, things like that. I know that um, uh, Ang Lee, when he was making Life of Pi, um, he used the film for a lot of reference for the kinds of editing they were going to do. So, um, yeah, it was very, very exciting. So it changed things. It did change things. Great experience to watch it. That was that was a thank you, John. That was lovely. That was an absolute culmination of what I would have called the A team who were working with you two at that time. It was the 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 same team who had been working on more or less Zoo TV, Pop Mart, Elevation, Vertigo. Uh, really, that was the culmination of a lot of people's work on that. All right, so look, we'll, we'll let you off the hook now with you two questions. Um, so we'll move on, musically speaking. Let's pick, let's pick something now. Uh, uh, okay, let's uh, maybe Donica Dennehy. Well, tell, tell me a little bit about it before we, we play. Okay, so the last exhibition I did in New York in November and uh, November through January, the audio track for that piece was composed by Donica. But anyway, he um, we're about to work on another project together where he's going to compose music. And it's a project related to migration called Making Tracks. And it's really about the the pathways to migration, um, having been somebody who left Ireland in the 80s during an economic migration um, and being in New York City, a country of migrants or a city of migrants, and then also watching the changes in Ireland, having reverse migration, not only by people who Irish people who left, but also all the other cultures who've come to make Ireland their home. So we're really looking at a very small part of that conversation, which is to do with the objects that people take with them when they migrate. How does the how does the collaboration work, or if you could describe that as best as possible? Because I know what it's not. I know it's not a case of Donica's got music and you put pictures to it, or you've got pictures and he puts music to it. It can't be either of those two things. So what what is it, and where where do you meet in the middle somehow? Where where do you? How does it become something? else bigger than the two of you in a sense well Donick is very interesting because he has a lot of experience um, he's worked with Enda Walsh on a lot of projects and so he has a lot of collaborative experience he's a professor of music at Princeton so he understands the language of collaboration I guess it probably really does come back to the collaborative flexibility in a way so it's so exciting well tell me we're about to play a piece called Paddy right so t- tell me a little bit about, about that one specifically well, in this piece with Paddy, I mean, it's, I haven't actually discussed it with Donica, so it'll be a surprise for him. Um, but what I really love about this piece is it's a piece that a couple of different musicians have interpreted. And it's all with found objects. You know, the, he's set it up. I mean, the musicians have set it up. So it's almost like an arrangement of instruments, but it's boxes, wooden boxes, plastic box, glass bottles. So... Again, it's this 
highbrow, lowbrow ability to take concepts and merge them together. That's so exciting for me. Okay, Paddy, and it's performed by Alex Petka. A piece called uh, Paddy, Donna Cadenahy, performed there by Alex Petku, the choice of Catherine Owens, who's with me in studio, picking all the music tonight. Let's talk, Catherine, about your own exhibition coming up next, opening next Thursday at the Oliver Sears Gallery in in Dublin, Molesworth Street in Dublin. Kustera, I heard you earlier on, so now I know how to pronounce it. <laughs> Kustera Project. Um, tell me about that, because this, this has, this as you mentioned earlier, it's been in Red Hook, it's been in other places, so... Yeah, this is an element of of an exhibition that I had at Costera Projects in Brooklyn in uh, November through January um, of this last year. It was a piece of work called Sliver. It was an installation piece and it included painting, uh, LED technology and LED lighting and audio, 360 audio. And it was really very, uh, I was very happy with the results of it. It was based on a story of a Guatemalan friend of mine who walked from Mexico across the, through the, waded through the Rio Bravo River and walked into Houston um, seeking asylum when she was 18. And it's a beautiful story that she tells. It's a very, it's a small story in ways, but it's just about her feelings of uh, leaving home, saying goodbye to her parents and then being um, taken for money into America um, and her experience as an 18 year old. Um, so I was, I'm very interested in the subject. It's a subject that's dear to everybody's hearts right now, the mm-hmm. migration subject. And this, the exhibition was based on that story. And then I created a series of paintings, very tall, thin paintings, two, two triptych pieces that had reverse LED inlaid into the back of them. So the lighting then um, reflected on the walls behind, the painting sat out from the walls and created this colour hue, this sequence of colour that uh, was programmed from sunrise to sunset. So it was really like a visual um, time travel of her story. Um, and uh, with this music from Donica. And then the show, so the show in uh, at Oliver, at Oliver's next week, takes one element of that, mm-hmm. and it's taking the, the lighting, the transition of lighting, and the audio. And then I've created a series of paintings to go with that. So. Now, it, there's a reference here to site-specific drawings as well. Yes. What does that What does that mean? Site specific drawing. Site specific drawing. Well, for th- in this case, it's really looking at the gallery and creating two. There are actually two large paintings, seven and a half foot by four and a half foot. Uh, we do feet in America, <laughs> feet and inches, um, and they're really made for the two rooms. So one for each room. Yeah. It's a beautiful space. It's it a is. very evocative space. Beautiful um, room. It's a, this is on Molesworth Street. If anybody's passing the Oliver Sears Gallery, and so it, it's it's sort of on all the time, if you know what I mean. The lights are always on. That's part of it. Yes, I'm creating what hopefully will be a, a, a quite a re- reflective environment. And um, we have the sounds of the dawn chorus and um, little elements of her story will just filter through very low um, 
Um, yeah, so it, it's going to be interesting to see how. One other thing about the space is that my grandmother and my, my mother grew up on Baggett Street. And um, so I spent a lot of my childhood in a space that is exactly the same layout as Oliver's gallery. So it has it has a lot of meaning for me. Um, <clears throat> let me ask you this then. Migration is a big issue at the moment, huge issue, massive issue, and it's going to get bigger. Um, and I remember I've asked a few artists this question who have who have created work that that um, somehow interrogates or investigates or looks at issues like that. And you ask them, yeah, what good's it going to do? Now, is that even the right question? Can it achieve anything? In the light of something out there that's kind of huge and horrible in terms of how migrating people are being treated as we speak on this programme tonight? Well, I know in... Of course, it's a huge story. It's like you could probably apply that to every single thing mm -hmm. <laughs> imaginable. But I know in the case of Lizeth, the, the woman who's telling her story, already being invited to tell her story yeah. has made a difference to her. Yeah. And she got to really express and explain something in a language that's not her native language that was able to go out and and have an impact on other people, even if it's taking a second look at the news tomorrow when you're looking at a mother of one of the children who has been taken away from them at the border. And you already have a story in your mind of a young woman who who's had her own journey. And is it accumulative? I think it's probably accumulative. OK, this exhibition, Catherine, it, it opens on Thursday. 28th. Thursday 28th at the Oliver Sears Gallery in Molesworth Street in Dublin. Your next musical choice, I'm going to let you talk about this. Um, <laughs> I was at the Stones a couple of weeks ago and one of the highlights was a performance of Wild Horses, which is a great song. So, Catherine, um, I'm going to... I'm just going to sit back and just, go on, convince me. Okay, so... Um, no, I'm, not, I'm, not being, I'm not being snobbish about this. I just genuinely, if you convince me, I'll play it. Okay, so we are going to be privileged to hear Susan Boyle's version of The Rolling Stones' Wild Horses. Um, you know, I, like probably half the nation, watched her... Uh, every week, you know, vie for position as the winner of the talent competition. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, it was great. It was great to see somebody achieve their dream, etc., etc. Um, but putting all judgment aside from where something comes from, when I heard her version of Wild Horses, I, I was really moved. I felt like, OK, here we are. It doesn't really matter what the path is to the to finding your way to express who you are. Um, for me, she gets to do something in this song that I feel mirrors that journey of how can I reach people? How can I tell my story, even if it's through somebody else's lyrics? 
Um, and I'm just a believer in everybody getting the opportunity. Okay, you've convinced me. Child. And that was the choice. <laughs> that was the choice of Catherine Owens. Um, you invite people in, you takes what you get. Uh, Catherine Owens there, and that, actually, well, it's a great song, isn't it? Yeah, it's and, beautiful. And if you know, so, and, and you're right. It's the baggage of of that contest and all that stuff. And if you hadn't told me who that was, or I go, yeah, that's good. But also, uh, <laughs> as no, but also as I was saying to you, it's like when you hear or see something where you know that the core and the essence of the performer is in it or the artist is in it, you, you just, you can't really walk away. You think she means that, yeah? Yeah, I feel I am, um, I think that that is definitely not a dialed in performance. Okay. Catherine, we've only time for one more track actually, but just just a reminder again, your your exhibition opens on Thursday at the Oliver Sears Gallery at uh, 29 Molesworth Street in Dublin. How long will it be there actually? It'll be you know? there till July, till July 31st. Okay, and the, the, All welcome. the exhibition is called 6am, uh, an exhibition of new works by Catherine Owens. Your next choice is Childish Gambino. Now this, actually this makes perfect sense that you would pick this because this is almost like the perfect marriage of the audio and the visual in that this song caused a sensation, but as much for the video as for the song. And it wasn't just that it was a brilliant video and a rubbish song. The two things were absolutely part of the same artistic offering. So tell me, from somebody who works in that business, were you, were you as struck as everybody else by this when it came out? I couldn't, I couldn't get over it, actually. Uh, somebody sent it to me in a link and said, you have to see this. And I looked at it and I, I felt, you know, when I think about the the situation in America at the moment. I mean, and it sort of goes back to the Lena Horn, you know, Billie Holiday, um, the, the, the early, early sounds of, um, or Louis Armstrong, you know, in listening to In My House growing up with my mother. Black music, black performers, and the power. Um, I know we haven't touched too much on Nina Simone, but this extraordinary power. When I saw this video and heard the song, I was like, okay, that this is exactly that power for this moment um, in a highly charged political times that we're in for black men in America. And again, I ask the question, given the sorts of people that, that Childish Gambino and everybody else is up against, will it make a whit of difference, do you think? Well, for me, as a, as, a, as a white woman, you know, European, um, I, looked at, I look at that video and I see a very strong, powerful man um, speaking on a subject that uh, the, the, the normal illustration of, of that man in, in that story is that he's been pulled over by the cops. I mean, there's the... the um, various things we've all watched over the last few years um, in America. And I feel this is that man speaking to um, a situation that has to stop. And he's doing it in this incredibly powerful way. Does it make a whit of difference? Um, well, it's made a difference to me because mm. I like to see something that strong 
I suppose I'm thinking about the, you know, can, can music change the world? You know, it's that old question. And, you know, I suppose the, the consensus seems to be it can't change the world, but it can change the individual. And once you change enough individuals, you change the world. Well, actually, I do think if you look at the a number of people on YouTube who've watched, you know, the millions of people who've watched that video and heard that song, and then you look at the number of people who are currently objecting to the policies on the border in America right now, you know, numbers mm. and movements. And at the end of the day, all of that translates into voting power. So, yes, I do think it's very, very important. Catherine, thanks a million for coming in, putting all the time in, picking these tracks. It's a big ask and also appreciate your time. All the best for your exhibition. Thanks, John. It's we'll been, see you soon. It's been great, thanks. Catherine Owens, thank you. Here's Childish Gambino. This is America. I'll see you at 7 o'clock tomorrow night in RTE Lyric FM. In Midlin is next with Sound Out. You've been listening to a podcast of Mystery Train with John Kelly. Mystery Train hits the rails every Sunday to Thursday at 7pm on 96 to 99 RTE Lyric FM.